The Truth News Network. In a world where a sitting president's Justice Department attempts to take out their chief political rival by throwing him in jail, in a world where the economy is in virtual freefall with China buying up everything in sight, the eternal question still remains as we look to our future and the elected officials who will make it happen. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? We're TNN, the Truth News Network, and we know the answer and to spell it out. Here's Dan Newman. Hello, everybody. Good morning and welcome to TNN Live. We have a plethora of big news items, things you've probably heard much of, but some of it you've not heard anything at all. But it's full of facts and it covers, oh, you know, that Israeli, Hamas, uh, Iran, Lebanon, (laughs) Jordan, Egypt, All of the stuff that's dominating our news cycle. Are you like me? You just watch and listen. And all you hear about is one big concerted package of events. What about the other ones that we've been talking about for months, for years now? They just all of a sudden slipped off the radar screen. Nobody's talking about it. Does that mean our southern border war is over and Our leaders finally decided to honor their commitments to the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law. And it's just gone away. Nobody's breaking laws down there. I can tell you, no, that hasn't happened. Are we having problems in our hospitals? Because people are being rushed to the ER every day. And they've been put either in a coffin or on the way to the coffin by illegal drugs. Did that stop all of a sudden? No. You know it hasn't. The same stuff is going on, and what's happening is we're getting layer upon layer of other diverting stuff, diverting our attentions away from the stuff we've been hoping and trying and praying to get fixed. And maybe, just maybe, you and I will forget about that other stuff. And we're just going to concentrate on what's going on. What have I told you again and again? When a politician is standing up and waving an arm around and screaming and hollering about this or about that, don't listen. Well, maybe just listen to find out what they're talking about. But don't make decisions based on that until and unless you look behind their backs and see what's going on that you're not seeing. See the things going on that they don't want us to see. That's why they're doing everything they can to wave that arm and divert our attention away from those important things. We have world leader things that happened overnight, things that were said. Some of this stuff you're just not going to believe, a bunch of it that you're not going to believe. And oh, by the way, I'll get into it right after this in detail, but that bombing of that hospital, evidence, hard, cold evidence showed up and it has all the facts. They paid paradise and put up a fucking lie With a pink hotel, a boutique and a swinging hot spot don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got till it's gone It'd be a paradise and put up a fucking line 
put them in a tree museum and charge the people a dollar and a half to see them. No, 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 don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. You'd be in paradise and put up a fucking lie. the 900 pound gorilla in the room is that hospital, that rocket that overnight over in Gaza hit a hospital killed at least 500 people that were in that hospital. What other horrors are those folks over there going to deal with before somehow we get some reconciliation and stop this insanity, this slaughtering? And of course immediately when that happens, finger pointing started. 
the very beginning of it, Hamas slammed Israel's outrageous lies. That's their term, outrageous lies over who's to blame for the Gaza hospital bombing. And of course, the Israeli Defense Force chief claimed that they had a wiretapped telephone call, a video too, of misfiring rocket and satellite photos prove that they, Israel, didn't fire the missile. Now, who's right and who's wrong? Who's telling the truth and who isn't? Well, before any of that could be confirmed, leaders around the world began pointing fingers too and jumping up on podiums and pointing fingers and naming names. One of them, Canada's premier, Trudeau, he was amongst the first to rush in after this report and blamed Israel for the Gaza hospital blast. In the hours after this blast occurred, Trudeau called the situation absolutely unacceptable. He was speaking in French, and he told reporters that it's not legal to bomb a hospital. The news coming out of Gaza is horrific, he said. International humanitarian and international law needs to be respected in this and all cases. There are rules around wars, and it's not acceptable to hit a hospital. UN Chief Antonio Guterres also saw the action as a direct strike by a hostile force. He said, I am horrified by the killing of hundreds of Palestinian civilians in a strike on a hospital in Gaza today, which I strongly condemn. My heart is with the families of the victims. Hospitals and medical personnel are protected under international humanitarian laws. Now, we're going back and forth about the political stuff, right? What about the other stuff? You know, people getting slaughtered. Health authorities in the Hamas-run enclave said hundreds of people died in the explosion, which they, of course, immediately blamed on Israel. The Iranian-backed Palestinian Islamic Jihad terror organization was responsible for the catastrophe due to a misfired rocket intended to kill Israeli civilians. Now, that report comes from the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces. They have since released, the IDF have, released an audio that shows the terrorists reacting once they realize their mistake. Hamas and critics of Israel, they just rushed in to blame an Israeli airstrike. Newswires, like the Getty Photo Service, published unproven claims Israel had attacked the hospital, citing the Gaza Health Ministry, which, by the way, is run by who? Hamas. The BBC's early reporting pointed a finger at Israel. Of all the misreporting last night, I think it's from the BBC, perhaps the most egregious. It's a credible news agency, and you would think they would not start blaming people, which Israelis or people, fellow humans, for killing 500 people without having evidence to back it up. Now, thankfully, our president, through his support behind Israel's account of the strike, he told, by the way, he's in Israel. He may be on his way back now. It's a long trip. I've done it before. But he's been in Israel overnight 
when he met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, coming out of that, Biden said it appears as though it was done by the other team after he landed in Israel for that visit. Hamas fired back at the comments from the Israeli military saying it's outrageous, lies, do not deceive anyone. Israel's Arab allies blamed it for the hospital deaths, despite the military's denials. The UAE and Bahrain, which both established ties with Israel in those Abraham Accords back in 2020, they condemned the, quote, Israeli attack. Morocco, another country that recognized Israel in 2020, also blamed Israel for the strike, as did Egypt, which became the very first country to normalize relations with Israel back in 1979. Well, who really did it? Who's responsible? An objective thinker would look at the in-context event. It does not, that hospital bombing does not exist in a vacuum. There's a lot of ancillary reasons and evidence of things out there in the past that show who probably did it. Honestly, that's the kind of stuff that Hamas does purposely. Purposely is a big word in this discussion. Evidence, evidence, evidence has emerged. And the Israeli Defense Forces, the first ones to bring it up, as well as, by the way, an independent and hostile media group, hostile to Israel, and the evidence shows it was an errant Palestinian terrorist group's rocket. It was not an Israeli airstrike that hit that hospital in Gaza City. Video, radar, maps, media coverage of the impact site, and an intercepted call between two Hamas operatives all confirmed that a Palestinian group's rocket launched very close to the hospital, misfired, hit the parking lot, caused a fire, and killed about 500 people. The first reports from the Hamas terrorist group and other media organizations operating under its jurisdiction were that an Israeli airstrike had hit the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital in Gaza City, killing 500 people in a deliberate attack on the Christian hospital. That's what Hamas said. News agencies picked up on that immediately. They repeated it around the world. Getty Images, that's one of our people. They published a map showing where the Israeli attack took place. Anti-Israel activist on X, well, that's Twitter, used to be. They seized upon all of the social media sites, making statements by pro-Israel influencers as proof Israel was to blame. The earliest reports from official Israeli sources were that the IDF was investigating the explosion and that it looked like the hospital might have been hit by an errant Hamas rocket. That's just something that happens frequently there, given the rockets have no guidance systems. Later, the IDF stated definitively that it it had evidence that the hospital had been hit by a Palestinian rocket, not fired by Hamas, but rather by Iranian-controlled Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That's a much smaller group that is fighting side-by-side with Hamas. IDF spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, 
went on international news shows to push back against the Hamas-issued narrative, which wasn't the truth. And here's what Jonathan Conricus tweeted, telling at Wolf Blitzer that we stand by our claim, which is based on intelligence and a thorough review that a rocket fired by the Islamic Jihad hit the Al-Ali Hospital last evening. Hamas tries to use every humanitarian event in its information warfare campaign. And then he went, he wasn't finished, he went on. Appalled by the double standards in reporting, breaking coverage on at BBC World, automatically blames Israel for an explosion at that Gaza hospital based solely on what the terrorist of Hamas claimed. And when we investigate and refute the claims, evidence must be delivered. But you know what? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. The public relations damage on all this has been done. Nobody's talking about the 500 people that got, that aren't breathing today because of that rocket. And you know what? It's very, very easy for the experts to go in and look at the explosion site and the little pieces of material left over and know absolutely confirm whose rocket it was. This all, the way it's being handled, it should really bother you. It does me. The loss of life in this. I mean, now we're over, what, 3,000, 2,800, 2,500? I don't know what the number is. But these are human beings that are having their lives snuffed out because of what? Terrorism. And I'm not saying that because I think Israel is perfect. That's not the point. Israel doesn't go around slaughtering human beings. Do they mess up? I'm sure they do. Do they have sometimes? Do they have bad intentions? Probably so. But when you look at the terrorist states and the terrorist organizations that are housed and supported within these terrorist states, why would anybody be surprised when something like this happens? In large part, that's why they exist. And they don't want, you know, you hear this two-state solution. Palestinians want the two-state solutions. They don't. There may be some that want a two-state where the Palestinians have their own site and Israel has their own site. And each of them have ownership and property and land and everything that goes with it. If that could be reconciled in your mind, Maybe you could find some possible peace coming down the pipe from over there. But that's not what they want. They say that as an excuse. If you look in your rearview mirror, you will see decades of terrorist activities against people that don't support Mahamas, Hezbollah, and they won't go after Israel. That makes you evil. So NBC News weighed in this morning. They asked a question that I did. Why in the heck did the president go 
to Israel in the middle of a war. It makes no sense to me. And I get it. Him just showing up and they showed him coming down the stairs from Air Force One and and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu there and they hug. They are good friends. They've known each other politically for many, many years. But seeing that happen, it made a lot of people feel good, feel better. But you know what it did? It put, if we weren't already as a nation in the bullseye of all the terrorists around the world, when they see the leader of Israel and the leader of the United States of America, two of the greatest powers on the planet, and I'm throwing Israel in there. Israel is more nuclear prepared and armed than is any other nation with the exception of the United States of America and Russia. They are a power. And so what that did, and I saw it, and for just a second I was excited about it. But then I started thinking of the ramifications. That just ramps up the hate, the vitriol, and what the plans of terrorists are going to do before it can be stopped. We're nowhere near getting this taken care of. So NBC News asked, what does Biden hope to accomplish on this trip? We want to go to Peter Alexander right now, who's standing by at the White House. Uh, Peter, the president's going to be trying to get a lot done here on the ground in a very short amount of time. Lester, that's right. He is likely to be there only a matter of hours before returning to the United States. Uh, intended trip to Jordan, where he was going to meet with Palestinian leaders, Mahmoud Abbas, the president, the Jordanian king, Abdullah, and the Egyptian president has been called off following uh, that awful uh, blast that took place at the hospital in Gaza, the president, we are told by White House officials, will instead speak to LCC of Egypt and to Mahmoud Abbas when he flies back aboard Air Force One later. But I think the, TK, the key takeaway from what you saw moments ago uh, was that it's not just the president standing with Israel, but standing in Israel, as uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, said here in this moment that played out about a half or half an hour ago is really the moment, the image, I think, that will reverberate around the world today, that embrace between the prime minister and the president. For Netanyahu, that alone uh, makes the president's trip worth it to demonstrate the support of the United States at this time. We are told by multiple administration officials that the idea of this visit was first floated not long after the awful attack where more than 1,400 uh, Israelis individuals were killed on October 7th. The president uh, visiting with members of his team on Monday ultimately said that he felt strongly it was important to continue to stand in solidarity with Israel and the Israeli people in, as it was described to us, their hour of need. We will hear from the president with more formal remarks a little bit later today, Lester. As we understand, the president will, after this visit with Netanyahu, also be meeting with Netanyahu's war cabinet to get a better understanding of the strategy there. Among the key points that he has already made public, not just on the ground here in the U.S., but now on the ground is in Israel, is the need for Israel to use restraint and some caution to try to limit civilian casualties as best possible now. Let's be very clear. What we have witnessed in the course 
of the last 24 hours has really changed this crisis, has made it even more volatile than it already was with many Arabs in that part of the world protesting in the streets after uh, that blast that took place at the hospital. The president, after those uh, remarks later today, will return to the United States, but not before he meets with some of the members of those who lost loved ones. And the White House expects him to meet also with first responders and also those whose loved ones are still missing. Lester, just the last takeaway here, we heard from the president reiterating what the White House had said for the first time to us overnight. The death toll of Americans has now risen. It started as just a handful in the immediate hours after the attack. We have now learned, as the president just said, 31 Americans are among those dead. 13 still unaccounted for, Lester. None of this, none of it needed to happen. Not a single thing. There's nothing good that can come out of it. Terrorism is, it's just plain terrorism. It exists out there as a catch-all. And if anybody wants to become a part of it, you've got to fall all the way into it. You've got to embrace terror. And you've got to be okay with lots and lots of death and maiming and infrastructure being destroyed because that's what it exists for is to kill whoever these people that embrace it and are using it as a weapon they want to kill their foes they want to eliminate their foes what kind of foes it doesn't matter if you disagree with them you're not worthy of breathing and they want you dead they're going to do everything they can to see to it that happens And the results of that, as you can imagine, are far-reaching. We have no confidence that we've seen the reality of what is at the root of this latest debacle, the Hamas slaughtering of all those Israeli people. Why was it done? What was the purpose? And what do they expect to get out of it to further their cause? Are they trying to get Palestinians around the globe up on their feet, screaming and hollering and demanding all the things that they continually demand? Is it just for that? I don't think that's it. I think there are causes, more than one is my opinion, based upon my observances and the things I've read and understanding a little more about the mindset of that terrorist that walks around looking almost every day, to find a Jew that he can destroy. Find a Jewish entity, family, building, business, oh, and hospital, that they can destroy. Why? Because they hate people that aren't of that political ilk. Muslim terrorism. You had to use the word Muslim in front of it, Dan. That's part of the faith. In the Quran, and I'm evil because I actually said the word, the title of their Bible, Quran. The infidel's not supposed to even utter that. That shows you a little bit about how ridiculous it is, but it's real. It's there, and we can't just act like it's going to go away. It's just a passing fad because it's been around for hundreds of years And I don't see it going away. And I don't care how many 
terrorists are destroyed, literally removed from the planet. I don't care how many there are. The seeds are planted. And when you plant seeds, good seeds, bad seeds, they always come back. Now, there are a lot of little hidden things going on in this current debacle in the Middle East. Biden landed in Israel yesterday. At the same time, a unit of U.S. Marines started moving into the Middle East to support Israel in this war with Hamas. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit to move into the region. The 26th MEU, that's what they call it, is an adaptable military force composed of all these infantry, aviation, logistics components, all operating under one command. It's positioned at sea. They're offshore of Israel. 26th MEU is equipped to execute amphibious missions, respond to crises, and engage in limited contingency operations across a spectrum of military scenarios. So this all came to pass after Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, sent the USS Dwight Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group to the Eastern Mediterranean, and they joined the USS Gerald Ford Carrier Strike Group. The United States has also deployed Air Force fighter groups to the region. Austin issued a prepared order to deploy, notifying 2,000 personnel from various units that they may be deployed, though no decision has yet been made on actual deployment. This order only puts these units on higher alert. The Secretary is going to continue to assess our force posture and remain in close contact with allies and partners. That comes from a spokesman at the Pentagon. The U.S. Department of Defense is focusing on helping Israel deterring others who are thinking of following Hamas's lead in their attacks on Israel. The DOD remains focused on three objectives, supporting Israel's defense through security assistance, sending a strong signal of deterrence to any actors who might be thinking about entering the conflict, and staying vigilant to any threats to U.S. forces. You see... There are so many moving parts in this. And I don't think there's anybody in leadership that knows every little thing that's involved here because they don't speak to each other. Hamas doesn't talk to their counterparts in Israel and vice versa. The same thing about Iran. None of those nations' leaders get on the phone and talk ever. And if they do, it's simply for some kind of show It's not because they want to get together to work out and solve this age-old, horrible thing that we see every once in a while play out. And don't think this is one-sided. 1971, military people in a building just doing their jobs for the United States and their allies up in Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon. And a Muslim terrorist with a truck full of explosives drove into that building and killed several hundred American members of the military. All the different forces, they were all consolidated there. We seem to forget 
the past a whole lot quicker sometimes. Things that we don't want to talk about. We don't want to remember. Death is something that in our culture, when I say our culture, I'm talking about Western culture, it's to be avoided at all costs. It's a final, absolutely last thing to consider when you're trying to reconcile differences and they become they become physical. I mean, military involved and those kind of things. That's a last resort, but it's not. In the Muslim world, the Muslim terrorists, that's the first thing on the list of to-dos. It is. Stuart Varney weighed in. Do you like Stu? I like him. I like his show. I like his little bits that he does because he doesn't waste a lot of words. He'll get up there and very concisely in a couple of minutes make a statement and include the things that he was trying to get in for whoever's listening or watching the statement that he makes. And he did one of those last night. Here's Stu Varney. It's clearly an all-hands-on-deck wartime situation. Biden is staking his presidency on this. He wants to limit the casualties in Gaza without interfering in Israel's crushing of Hamas. He's talking to Israel's neighbors about who runs Gaza when Hamas is out. But most of all, he wants to avoid a wider war with Iran. That's why American military power is on full display. That's why Biden lays down a red line. Don't interfere, he says. None of this will be easy, but all of it is necessary. Now, look, we can argue that this wouldn't have happened in the first place if Biden hadn't shown such weakness in so many areas. But this is where we are. It's high anxiety time. Biden leads a divided party. College campuses allow anti-Semites full reign. There's risk of attack from border-crossing terrorists and always the risk that, yet again, Iran will upend an American president. Judgment on Joe Biden comes this week. That was very concise and very to the point. No wasted words, but it's probably true. You know, sometimes we American citizens, we take for granted the impact that our leaders have when they interact with leaders of other nations. But it's really important. The United States has been known for a long time of being one of, if not the most powerful nation on the planet. And having a good relationship with the leaders of our country is something that leaders in other countries lust to have. They really want to be partners with the United States of America. So when any of our leaders gets on a jet and goes overseas, wherever they're going, it's a big deal. Now, Pierre Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, he really made a mistake when he came out backing Hamas and blaming Israel for the bombing of that hospital. It wasn't a good political move. Why would he do that? It's, I said Pierre Trudeau. His dad, his father, former Prime Minister, was Pierre. Justin Trudeau, the son. And he was one of the very first to blame Israel for this holocaust that happened yesterday at that Hamas hospital. Our leaders need to be careful. They sometimes don't realize how important what they say in public is. And they may say things that just comes right off the top of the head. We're all guilty of that. But it's a little bit different when you're at that level and every word that you say somebody's recorded it, and it's going to come back and haunt you later on. 
That's just part of living in the United States or most of the other countries on earth. Politics, it always takes a special place of its own. And every citizen is interested to some degree, some more, some less. But most people want to know what's going on in their government. I think Justin Trudeau made a big mistake, a really big mistake. Now, meanwhile, back at home, we have a lot of Palestinians that live in the United States of America that have immigrated here, many of them legally, but some, obviously, with our southern border situation, illegally. And we're seeing across our nation a really, really scary sight, especially on college campuses. Not everyone, but many college campuses, these Palestinians and Palestinian supporters and anti-Trump, anti-Trump, I said anti-Trump, I meant anti-Jews, they're getting out there and they're supporting Hamas in large and they're supporting all of this stuff. And it's uncanny. People like me, I cannot believe anybody here that wanted to come here, came here to make a better life for themselves. And once they get here, they're out there screaming and hollering for political opponents to kill each other. But that's what's happening. We're going to get into that a little bit and how it ties into our problems, our immigration problems, principally coming down at our southern border. Sit tight for that. Little Caesar's Thin Crust Pizza is so loaded with cheese and pepperoni you can't even see the crust. And if you ever want to see it again, listen very carefully. Bring six forty nine in unmarked bills or marked bills or coins or just a credit or debit card to Little Caesar's. Come alone and bring your friends or family. Bring everyone. Get a Little Caesar's Large Thin Crust Pizza with extra cheese and the most pepperoni, all at the nation's best price of just six forty nine. Pizza, pizza. Top four national pizza chains. Extra most bestest thin crust pepperoni pizza versus large round one topping thin crust pepperoni pizza. Everyday standard menu prices at participating locations plus. We're outside Pilgrim Furniture and Mattress City where parents are disappearing. Excuse me, are your parents in there? Yeah. They can't decide if they should take no interest for 60 months with no money down or an extra $100 off every $9.99 they spend. It's a tough choice. But they've been in there for six hours. I want dinner. Parents, if you're at Pilgrim, please make a decision. Here's good news. Even with high unemployment, there's still a need for hundreds of thousands of cybersecurity professionals in the U.S. right now. And My Computer Career is training people to help meet the demand. No IT experience? No problem. Take the free career evaluation today at mycomputercareer.edu. Start your new life as an IT pro in as little as four months. Grants covering up to 53% of the cost are available to those who qualify. It's not rocket science. It's mycomputercareer.edu. Those in the know like to stay in the realm of innovation. Join them. It's easy to keep up with the latest trends and own the latest tech with BMW Select as it offers you the option to drive a brand new BMW every three years. You also get to tailor your deal to suit your pocket and your lifestyle. Visit select.bmw.co.za for more. BMW Select. Dynamic finance for ultimate control. BMW Financial Services is an authorized FSP and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Partisan spin? Not here. Identity politics? Go somewhere else. This is TNN, the Truth News Network. Here's Dan Newman. So the college kids 
they're not liking what they're seeing happen over there, and they, in large part, are swallowing the poison pill of anti-Semitism. You can't call it anything other than anti-Semitism. And it is running rampant, and it's getting deeper and wider and more vile across our nation. And I mean, there are a lot of governments, government officials in countries around the world, they're coming out and basically going after Israel and things that they say about this. I don't understand that simply because, yeah, it's been going on for a long, long time, but this latest spate of terror and death and barbary is happening right now, and it was instigated in a vacuum by Hamas. So back here in the United States, there are people, college professors, lawmakers, there are people in the U.S. Congress that are calling out and are anti-Israelis or anti-Semites. The fallout up at the University of Pennsylvania's response for their anti-Semitism on campus in the wake of this terrorist attack on Israel, it continues. It's going all this week. It's been going on all last week. David Magerman, who helped build the trading systems of Renaissance Technologies, he's a billionaire. He came out, scolded UPenn President Elizabeth McGill and chair of the board of trustees Scott Boak for hosting Palestine writers' literature last month and for a poor response to the Hamas terror attack in Israel, which left 1,400 people, mostly civilians, dead. Why isn't anybody talking about those 1,400 people? That was an unprovoked attack. People who care about morality and ethics should just leave institutions that show that they don't Magerman said this in a telephone interview yesterday. He added he's deeply ashamed of his association with the university while planning to cease his major donations. He's jumping ship, and it comes after UPenn lost a major donor and a board member due to anti-Semitism on campus. John Huntsman, you know the name, former governor of, um, where was he governor? I can't remember which place he was governor. Abby Huntsman, his daughter, was a host on Fox News. He's the former U.S. ambassador and a major donor to UPenn. He said he would no longer be funding the school, citing its silence in the face of the horrific terrorist attack. He was a governor of Utah. The university's silence in the face of this historic Hamas evil against the people of Israel, it's a new low. Silence is anti-Semitism, and anti-Semitism is hatred, the very thing higher education was built to get rid of. That's what the former governor said in a letter to the Daily Pennsylvanian. Consequently, Huntsman Foundation will close its checkbook on all future giving to Penn, something that has been a great source of enormous pride for now three generations of graduates my siblings join me in this rebuke. After a three-hour emergency meeting, Van Gergian resigned from UPenn's Board of Trustees for the same reason. Just as so many other elite academic institutions, the Penn community 
has been failed by an embrace of anti-Semitism, a failure to stand for justice, and complete negligence in the defense of our students' well-being, he said in his resignation letter. UPenn President Liz McGill said the university does not support anti-Semitism. She said this, the university did not and emphatically does not endorse these speakers or their views. While we did communicate, we should have moved faster to share our position strongly and more broadly with the Penn community, she said. I stand and Penn stands emphatically against anti-Semitism. We have a moral responsibility as an academic institution and a campus community to combat anti-Semitism and to educate our community to recognize and reject hate, she said. Now, this is an example of the insanity that is running rapid around the world over this conflict. Leaders, powerful people, heads of big corporations, universities, people that are teaching our children in school at every level, these people are standing up and they are spouting, spewing, perpetuating anti-Semitism, and they don't call it that because this is the United States of America. Everybody has the right to speak their mind. They're just speaking their mind. It's nothing bad. These people like this president of UPenn, Liz McGill, if they don't support anti-Semitism, they should publicly reach out and damn it from their pulpits that they have been given. Not taking part of, not being part of, not endorsing it is not enough anymore. We Americans need to stand up in support of what we know is right. We're being invaded at our southern border, in many cases quietly. Now that this is going on in the Middle East, nobody over here wants to talk about the illegal actions at our southern border perpetuated every day by our leaders in Washington who just simply refuse to enforce the rule of law. In fact, President Biden, we're told, is coming back to America and he's going to ask for tens of billions of more dollars for this craziness going on in the Middle East and our southern border. We need, to, we need to give the government more money because they're doing such a great job down there with what they have. Eight million illegals that we know of have crossed during this administration, every single one of them illegally stepping into the nation. That can't be reconciled in a free nation, the people of a republic, the ones that the republic's document, the U.S. Constitution, the longest landing, uh, longest lasting nation's founding document in world history, when it says the fundamental is, and everybody that is a part of it, will enforce the rule of law, the tenets in the Constitution, and keep people safe. Listen to what I'm about to say. When Joe Biden gets back here, he is going to, through executive order, not through Congress, through executive order, he's going to violate the spread of the responsibility of our government 
and he's going to make a decision, make an announcement, and will probably brag about it. He's going to open up for every Palestinian that wants to leave. If they're considered to be a refugee, we will open our arms for them. But guess what around the world? One would think the obvious place for these people to go to if they're disattached, their life is over. They can't exist in Gaza where they are. Not far to the south is Egypt, a fellow Muslim country. Not far to the east is Syria. All these countries over there, the leaders are coming out. Jordan, the king of Jordan came out, and he said, not one, not one will be allowed in Egypt, in Jordan, in Syria. Now, why would that be? Why would our president want to open the gates of the United States, take the walls down? We don't need any border patrol. Just let everybody who wants to come, come. Why would he do that? I can't give you an answer. You know why? There's no obvious answer to it. It's insane. And the results are going to be worse than anybody thinks they could be. How many Islamic terrorists today live in the United States? How many do? Well, I mean, you know, this is the boiling plate. This is where the world's dissidents can come to and be welcomed. Yeah, that's a part of the problem. They're not supposed to do it. Coming into this nation without a formal written invitation from our government is a federal law violation. And that's happened 8 million times at the behest of President Biden. And he is going to try to do it again. Members of Congress are standing up saying, we can't let this stand. Tom Cotton from Arkansas was the loudest one yesterday. Fox News reports on what he feels about. Listen to this. I'll just let him tell. Meanwhile, Senator Tom Cotton demanding DHS Secretary Mayorkas take control of America's borders before the open policies allow Hamas supporters to bring the conflict on U.S. soil, saying, quote, I write to urge you to immediately deport any foreign national, including any, especially any alien on a student visa that has expressed support for Hamas and its murderous attacks on Israel. These fifth columnists have no place in the United States. Uh, This is really interesting, Bill, because a lot of people are saying, let's not take our eye off the border. We've seen Griff Jenkins and others reporting at the border. Um, There are people coming over the border from Iran. Uh, Currently, uh, we are getting reports of that. So this is obviously an important part of the ongoing story that is happening there in the Middle East. Some of the things that you wonder about now, because these terrorists learn and they adjust and they have made adjustments. You think about the terrorists of 9-11 and how they infiltrated America and kept quiet. Um, it, it appears that these Hamas terrorists did the same thing in Gaza, operating perhaps in small groups and not communicating with any sort of electronics, but really face-to-face communication. Uh, that border's been open for two years, Sandra, and the imagination runs wild as to whether or not um, those folks are here now. And if they are, are they planning and plotting and doing it in a way where we would not be able to detect them? The four years of the Trump administration, we had no terrorist attacks. Nothing happened internally. Before that, there were constantly. Thankfully, they didn't just grow and get wider and more and more people get killed. 
But there are people that come here, and they're coming here for a purpose, and they'll bra- they'll brag about it. They'll tell you, "Hey, we're going. We're considered the United States is the great Satan on the planet. That's what the Islamists believe about us. We're the great Satan." Well, who's the small, the little Satan? It's Israel. And as far as they're concerned, the best way to defeat us, the infidels, is to go within their ranks and take them out. Am I saying anything bad about Islam or Muslims? I'm not at all. I'm talking about the choices that are made that are unlawful. They're not acceptable. Taking human lives for any reason, for any purpose, is never right. In war, things change. We don't need to have wars. Our leaders should be able to sit down and discuss differences and come up with a way to reconcile living together just simply by respecting, you think differently from me, I think differently from you, but that doesn't make one of us worthy of living and the other unworthy of living, whatever your doctrine is, if you want to live together, if you want to live in a free nation, you've got to lay the differences down and just respect the fact that we may just have to live disagreeing with each other. This thought process that says, hey, just go ahead and do anything you want. You want to kill somebody? Go ahead and kill them. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz yesterday condemned a firebomb assault on a synagogue in Berlin, saying we will never accept when attacks are carried out against Jewish institutions. Whoever did it threw two Molotov cocktails early yesterday at the synagogue in the center of the German capital. As an anti-Semitic incident in the country has been rising following the violent escalation south of there, on the other side of the Mediterranean, the Middle East, Unknown persons threw those Molotov cocktails from the street. That comes from somebody from that particular area. Dozens of police officers were investigating in front of the synagogue in the city's Mitte neighborhood, and the entire street next to the building was cordoned off and blocked for traffic. Police said they were investigating an attempted serious arson in which two people approached the synagogue by foot. 3.45 in the morning through two Molotov cocktails, which burst on the sidewalk next to the building. Those two people, their faces covered, ran away. A couple hours later, when cops were already investigating that incident, a 30-year-old man approached the synagogue on a scooter, threw it aside, and tried running toward the building. When the police detained him, he resisted and shouted a bunch of anti-Israeli slogans. We're all shocked by this terrorist attack, Germany's leading Jewish group, the Central Council of Jews, said. Above all, the families from the neighborhoods around the synagogue are shocked. Their unsettled words become deeds. Hamas's ideology of extermination against everything Jewish is also having an effect in Germany. It's not like the German people need something else to remind them of the Holocaust although there are tons of people that don't believe the Holocaust ever happened. That's hard to believe. There is so much history, so much documentation, everything you can imagine, written, video, pictures, still pictures, 
in the millions document at least 6 million Jews were exterminated by the Nazis led by Adolf Hitler of Germany of all places. I've been to Germany. Didn't spend a lot of time there, but I've been there. You know what's cool about Germany? Their highways are pristine. And all along the highways, when you're riding through the countryside and you're looking at forest and trees and there'll be some open area with some trees in the middle of a pasture and stuff like that, there is no dirt. There's no filth. You don't see any tree limbs laying on the ground. The ground is pure and clean. The roads are pure and clean. That has nothing to do with the conversation today. I don't even really know why uh, (laughs) I brought it up, but I'm thinking about Germany. Most Germans look back at the past and look what happened before they were alive. They can't believe it either. And what I don't understand, I mentioned this just a few minutes ago, neither the nation of Jordan nor Egypt are going to accept any refugees that are trying to get out of the Gaza Strip. King Abdullah II of Jordan informed in a meeting Tuesday with German Chancellor Schultz in Berlin, neither Jordan nor Egypt is willing to accept any refugees fleeing the Gaza Strip after Hamas used the West Bank as a base to attack Israel. Now, why why would this happen? I mean, these people, they're all Islamists. They're Muslims. The Jordanian king said the humanitarian situation must be dealt with inside Gaza and the West Bank and not be pushed into neighboring countries. He told reporters, this is a red line. No refugees to Jordan and also no refugees to Egypt. This is a situation that has to be handled within Gaza and the West Bank, he said. Reports say, and you don't have to carry this out on the shoulders of others. Abdullah also said everything needs to be done to prevent a further escalation of this conflict, speaking ahead of his departure of Schultz. The whole region is on the brink, he said. This new cycle of violence is leading us towards the abyss. Jordan has previously refused to accept Gazan refugees through a strict non-admittance policy. The head of Jordan's royal court told Human Rights Watch in May of 2013 any influx of Palestinians would alter Jordan's demographic balance and potentially lead to instability. Cairo, capital of Egypt, is also wary of political fallout, security risk posed by Gazans trying to enter the country. Schultz, who's traveling to Israel later this week, Stress the country has every right to defend itself and can count on Germany's support against the Hamas terrorists. And then Antony Blinken, our Secretary of State, he's been over there, I guess, for a week or so. The president even went. So there's a lot of concern. The sad thing about the United States in this is we react very, very slow. There was a special done last night. I forget what network it was on but I watched the end of it. And what it was about was the reactions to people from other countries, the reactions of their country's leaders when it became necessary to get those citizens out of Israel. 
other countries. Our president, our administration, they didn't do anything. They waited for a week to start getting any Americans out themselves. Boy, does that sound like what we saw happen in Afghanistan two years ago, where we saw those Afghan people grabbing onto those Air Force jets and holding on as long as they could, rising in altitude and watching them lose their grip on the outside of that plane and fall to their deaths. That's a pretty desperate situation. But they were doing it because Joe Biden did not honor his promise to everybody that worked with us, all of our people that were in Afghanistan, people that worked in the embassy. He promised that we would not leave, our military would not leave until every one of those people was taken out safely. That's the commitment of the United States. We don't even know how many people died. We're still not sure how many of these people are over there still hiding, hoping to get out of Afghanistan before the Taliban find them and slaughter them. Biden's doing the same thing. Wait, 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 and then the first plane that the U.S. government sent over there to bring Americans out, those that were on that flight got a notice they were going to have to repay the United States for the cost of that trip. And we watched we watched the United States government be slapped into lunacy when the state of Florida privately, the state and donors privately funded, and they got people out on the jet last week. And the people flying on that jet didn't have to pay a dime for it. Which of those two that I talked about, what the United States government has done and what individuals in the United States have done in cooperation, by the way, with the governor of Florida, which one represents the American lifestyle? You got to make a choice. Which one was done the right way? Which one wasn't done the right way? And when there's a pattern when you have circumstances in your rearview mirror that either disagree with or confirm your thoughts about what's going on, I believe the Biden administration and leadership, I believe our State Department is in shambles. I believe Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, he has a whole lot of history in other places in government. And that history is not very good. But he got the Secretary, he got the Secretary of State position for Joe Biden. Just because you get a title doesn't mean you're qualified to do the job. So there's more going on in this Israeli-Hamas debacle in the Middle East. Political, it's political for every country on the planet. Larry Kudlow, he served many presidential administrations. I mean, he's, he's an old guy. He's older than me, and I'm 70. But he weighed in last night with some really salient thoughts on President Biden, his trip to Israel, and what all this means to the reality of life. Not that anyone needs reminding, but documents recovered from the bodies of dead Hamas terrorists show orders to kill as many Israelis as possible. All right? Don't want to forget that. One document from Hamas terrorists sent to attack Sa'ad, which is a 670-person collective farming community, that document instructed the terrorists to, quote, take control of the kibbutz, 
kill as many individuals as possible and capture hostages until receiving further instructions, uh, period, end quote. So, so, it's not surprising that former U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman told us this last night. Because Israel will annihilate Hamas given the opportunity. They have... All right. Or in military terms, General Jack Keane told us this last week. I don't want to forget it. And Larry, I mean, we got to be upfront about what needs to be done here. We need to kill them. That's the only thing that stops these guys. They are absolutely committed to this barbarism. And we got to go in and kill them, just like we did with ISIS, just like we did with the Al-Qaeda. All right. I sincerely hope President Joe Biden understands this. Now, I give Biden credit so far for standing behind and supporting Israel. Yes, I give Biden credit. But the diplomatic talk is now that Mr. Biden is going to Israel because his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, got assurances from Prime Minister Netanyahu of a substantial humanitarian aid package for Palestine. Well... What does that mean? Hundreds of trucks, hundreds of trucks are lined up on the border in Egypt to enter the Gaza Strip for, quote, humanitarian aid. But there's no inspection of this aid. Could be baby formula or it could be war materials. Who's going to run this aid? Hamas. As Caroline Glick writes, all in the so-called ministries in Gaza are Hamas. All the hospitals are Hamas. All the distribution will be done by Hamas. Caroline Glick will be joining us in just a minute to talk about this. And Senator Marsha Blackburn, who will be on later in the show, is also opposed to this so-called Palestinian aid because it's Hamas aid. Meanwhile, U.S. taxpayers have basically given Hamas about a billion dollars in the last couple years. Donald Trump cut that off. Joe Biden reinstated it. Who's helping whom here? Also, a letter to Mr. Biden. Get this. 63 House Democrats and 50 Republicans, therefore a bipartisan letter, 113 people, petitioning Mr. Biden to cut off all Iran funding sources, maximum enforcement of economic sanctions, end the Iran oil trade to China, worth, by the way, $153 million per day. And the letter says, be sure that the UN ballistic missile sanctions on Iran that expire tomorrow, October 18th, cannot be allowed to expire. This is 117 bipartisan House members. By the way, their letter asked Mr. Biden to put pressure on Qatar and Turkey to cease their support of Hamas. Little known factoid, most of the Hamas leaders are in Qatar. The Biden administration hasn't said a word about all this. They're still in denial about Iran and presumably Qatar and Turkey. Now, a bunch of GOP senators led by Tom Cotton want to block former Obama Treasury Secretary Jack Lew from the Israeli ambassadorship because Lew has a pro-Iran track record. And when he was at Treasury, Lew unfroze billions of dollars of Iranian assets. Now, let me give a quick diversion here. I got to add this. Apparently, the Biden administration is about to ease energy sanctions on Venezuela. Really? Venezuela is run by communist dictator Nicolas Maduro. That government is backed by thousands of Cuban military and secret service people. 
Are we begging for oil from a socialist dictator again? And finally, a very big hat tip to historian Walter Russell Mead and his Wall Street Journal column called Appeasing Iran Has Failed. I want to note this. Professor Mead writes, Iran is unappeasable, but this truth is too inconvenient for the Biden administration to admit. Instead, administration spokesmen continue to minimize Tehran's involvement with and responsibility for the murders. He goes on to say, it is the mullahs and the agents of the Islamic Republic of Iran who provided the resources, training, and encouragement without which the Hamas leadership would neither have dared nor been able to unleash this evil on the world. The truth is simple. Iran is at war with Israel and with the U.S. It does not seek compromise or accommodation. It wants what it says it wants, a holocaust in Israel and the destruction of the United States. Walter Russell Mead. My question, is anybody in the Biden administration listening? We don't get any inkling whatsoever from what we're hearing and seeing coming from the Biden administration that there's anybody in this government that wants to accept the realities of what's going on in the Middle East, why they're going on, and what the end result is that those people that are perpetuating all of this terrorism are expecting. They want an outcome that does away totally with Judaism and every Jew. And oh, by the way, over here in the United States, the number one thing Iran is trying to develop and get finished is nuclear capability. Now we know what they think about us. We know what they say about us. Can't you see a couple of ICBM nuclear missile tipped headed towards Washington, D.C. coming from Tehran? I know that's extreme, but don't doubt it, folks. Speaking the truth, the left doesn't want you to hear. TNN, the Truth News Network. I know I should quit smoking. But it's just... <sighs> My feet and hands are numb a lot. Walking to the bathroom gets me winded. <coughs> I cough all the time. Seriously? <sighs> I've been dying to quit. Don't wait till you're dying to call. When your health is worse, it will be too late. 1-866-QUIT-YES. The Illinois Department of Public Health and the American Lung Association in Illinois. QuitYes.org. Grab an ice-cold can of Celsius and stay active and energized all day. Celsius is better for you energy, made with premium ingredients, zero sugar, and seven essential vitamins, with no high-fructose corn syrup, no aspartame, no preservatives, and no artificial colors or flavors. Celsius is just the essential energy you need to keep you fueled and active all day. Celsius, essential energy, live fit. Now find Celsius at Celsius.com or a retailer near you. just reported minutes ago that Israel has prepared a humanitarian safe zone in Gaza for fleeing civilians. 
And it's not just Palestinians. Any civilian assistance to get them out safely. After days of negotiating with Egypt, the U.S. and others wanted to create a safe zone for these fleeing Gazans. The Times of Israel reports now that the Israeli Defense Force has acted. The IDF says Palestinians should go to a humanitarian zone in the Al-Mawasi area close to Khan Yunus, where international humanitarian aid is going to be provided as needed. That's just a start. It's got to be just a start. It also renewed a call on Palestinians in the northern part of the Gaza Strip to evacuate going south. As the military has warned again, it will soon heavily target that area. The military even published a map on social media that shows the safe zone and how to get there. IDF Chief Spokesman Brigadier General Daniel Haggery made the announcement this morning at a press conference to prove Islamic Jihad's rocket hit a hospital in Gaza late Tuesday night. Israel has offered the time-limited safe passage to more than a million Palestinians who now are leaving northern Gaza as the military carried out localist raids ahead of that expected ground assault. There's so much more to come. So much more. I'm skimming as we talk right here at late coming news. I want to make sure while we're on the air, none of us are missing any of the good, the bad, and the ugly, the truth of what's out there. Isn't it a a shame? I mean, how do you reconcile not being able to conduct business as a government because of terrorism? There's so much going on out there that we have no control over of. Nothing we can do is going to pacify those that want nothing but death for their political opponents. And caught in the middle are millions of innocent people that their big sin is their breathing air because they were born. There's nothing they can do about it. Throughout human history, every time there have been a multitude of people Somebody wants to get into it and take control over the other people. It didn't matter when it was four or five or six or 6,000 or 6 million or 20 million. It always works that way. Somebody sees an opportunity to gain power over other humans. And through the years, we have devised multitude of ways to convince people to let us take control of them in their lives. And it usually comes with promises, sometimes with threats, sometimes they're at the point where militarily they're uh, powerful enough and strong enough to force these other people to give up what the uh, terrorists want want to have and what they're demanding. But it happens, and it happens in every nation on earth. It happens wherever they're are people. People. I mean, look at what's happening in Congress. Look at what's going on right now. I have never seen such insanity simply trying, the GOP, simply trying to find somebody to be the Speaker of the House. And I've listened to the 20 or so that are dead set against the person that was nominated It's crazy 
that they can't reconcile their differences and come up with a consensus. You know why it's so crazy? Because they don't work for themselves. They're up there supposedly working for us, and guess what? They're not working, so they're not working for us. You know, nobody is perfect. Everybody, all of us have faults. We have disagreements because of our faults, maybe because of perceived or real things that are going on in our interaction with other people that we work with or that work for us. I get all that. But it doesn't take a genius to understand and recognize the necessity of working through differences that we have when we're supposedly united for one central cause. And the central cause of every member of the House of Representatives, 435 of them, their cause, the only one that matters, is to get up there and do the business of the people. We're the ones that we voted for whoever we wanted to go up there that wanted to go up there and service and be doing our work for the people in their respective congressional districts. But look at the debacle that they have put themselves and you and me in. So why, oh why, is it the big deal? What is really going on in all that? Have you thought it through? I mean, I think I understand the political thought process pretty good. I've been at this a long time. I look at both sides of every argument, every conflict. I never just automatically default to somebody with one particular political spectrum. I don't do that. I know people are driven by different things, and purpose and reasoning are never just absolute in politics. Again, yesterday, House Republicans tried. They failed to elect a speaker after two weeks now. They haven't done a flipping thing in the House for two weeks. They ousted Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Jim Jordan, the second Republican speaker nominee in two weeks, yesterday he fell short of elected in a first-round floor vote. 20 fellow Republicans refused to back him. Now, I thought we lived in a representative democracy, a representative republic. (laughs) In that context... Nobody has to be totally all in on everything the majority in that wants to do or wants not to do. We're supposed to be able to have conversations, meetings, and we have examples from our way, way back history after the United States government was formed. We actually had some people jousting. I mean, picking up guns. And somebody died in that. That's how... They got things done, getting together with people that didn't think the same way and working out their differences. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jim Ryan take a gun and go out and take somebody on that he disagrees with or they disagree with his political philosophy. But, dadgummit, if you're going to represent the people, why don't you talk to the people? Why don't you see what the people in your district think and want? And then try to reach a consensus with those who represent other Americans, other Republicans in this case, 
and come up with a way to unify it and not sit outside, get in a room, move, do something, and you get face-to-face. And instead of just cussing each other and trying to manipulate people, be honest with yourself and honest with your fellow members of Congress and represent one thing, what you're there for, and reconcile the differences and go to work. Either that or quit. I and millions of other Americans are sick and tired of this. Get it done. So what is going on? Why has it taken House Republicans so much time, so much anxiety, to just accomplish the very first task that the majority in the House does every, every session of Congress? You know what the answer is? It has to do with the numbers game that is the U.S. Congress. It's a numbers game, the temperament of the Republican Party. And the most basic element in any form of leadership, and in large part it's missing in this house, it's called trust. Republicans now have a nine-seat advantage. Nine. It's not the smallest lead in history, but it means just five Republicans can block anything the majority tries to do. And that's happened several times. Historically, Congress has had wild swings of momentum from one election cycle to the next. We've lived through it. We've seen it happen. Flipping dozens of seats from red to blue and then blue to red. And because of that, the advantage enjoyed by the majority party has typically been a bit larger. The last six times the Republicans controlled the House, the average margin was 40 seats. For Democrats, the average lead was 45 seats over a similar period of time. So with that many votes to spare, it's much easier to isolate the most liberal or the most conservative members. With a small majority, it's nearly impossible. You think that's exactly what we're living in today. The problem is they, Republicans, need 20 more Republican votes. Now, this is former Speaker Newt Gingrich talking. With 20 more Republican votes, you can afford to have eight or nine people that act crazy sometimes. But when you're down to four or five, it's almost impossible. Yet Democrats only had a 10-vote lead in the last Congress, but with just 10 votes. They were able to rally behind their speaker, pass a bunch of significant pieces of legislation That included the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, and a whopping $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill. They got all that done. Republicans have a nine-vote margin, and they can't even reach consensus on who's going to lead them. Why haven't the Republicans shown that same kind of unity? A number of House Republicans have been ready to line up behind the conference nominee, whoever that might be, for the sake of progress. Sometimes you're not going to get your guy, your girl. You just do what's best for the people and find a way to work with anybody in leadership. Nicole Maliotakis, a Republican from New York, she said, at the end of the day, I'd be happy to support Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise, or maybe there's another person. But we need to get it done. Here's a problem. They need to start at her last sentence. 
and work backwards instead of trying to start at the work backwards part and somehow get to the front part. The term, the label, the phrase, we just need to get it done. We just need to get it done should be the ammunition that drives this whole thing. That represents a more traditional brand of republicanism. That's shown in President Ronald Reagan's so-called 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill of a fellow Republican. Ultimately, most, most GOP members have been willing to stick together, regardless of their differences within their own party. Yet, there has long been a stubborn streak among House Republicans that gives speakers fits from time to time. None of them have been exempt. One reason Gingrich declined to run for re-election as Speaker in 98, despite having delivered a balanced budget for four years, reforming welfare, cutting taxes, was the opposition by the hardliners within his own party. And I mean, he told them that. He said, I had 18 or 19 members who decided I wasn't tough enough. They said they wouldn't vote for me, period. Just like Kevin McCarthy talking about the speaker that was ousted. Former speakers John Boehner of Ohio, Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, they also were plagued by fierce opposition by a small but determined group of hardline Republican members. You remember this, that my way or the highway attitude? It's not unique to GOP congressmen. Republican voters are much less inclined to compromise than our Democrats or independents. And that attitude has hardened over the last quarter century. As our federal government got close to a shutdown last month, remember this, 64% of you and me, 64% of Americans said they wanted members of Congress to compromise in order to get away from a shutdown. Compromise. 31% said members should stick to the principles. That's according to a Monmouth University poll. However, only half of Republicans favored compromise. Nearly an equal number, 46%, said GOP congressmen should stick to their principles. 25 years ago, Republican voters were still less likely to do that compromise thing than were Democrats, but noticeably more willing than they are today. Back in 1996, in December, 63% of Republicans said congressmen should compromise to find agreement within President Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, of all people. 63% of Republicans said their congressional members should compromise to get stuff done with Bill Clinton. Only 28% said they should stand up for their principles. That's according to a Wall Street Journal poll. This stubborn streak in the Democrat, I don't even know why I said Democrat, I slipped. (laughs) Yeah, Democrats can be stubborn too, but Republicans, it appears to have gotten wider over the years. And that is reflected on what we're living through today. Representative Max Miller, Republican from Texas, he said just before the first GOP nominating conference, if Jim Jordan does not get the majority within that room, 
I will go down to the House floor and continue to vote for Jim Jordan. Now, a handful of Republicans are saying they'll back anyone but Jim Jordan. How does this happen? (laughs) But if Republicans are all fighting for the same things, debt reduction, border security, reduced regulation, what does it matter who the speaker is? Lack of trust is the 900-pound gorilla in this room. House Republicans generally agree on the agenda, but they often disagree on how to get the job done. Some want to see the federal deficit eliminated almost immediately. To them, cutting federal spending by 1% shows a lack of seriousness. They're afraid that if Congress won't make the hard choices right now, it never will. Matt Gates, firebrand from Florida. He's the one that led the push to get Kevin McCarthy booted from the speaker position. He said, I think we need to rip off the Band-Aid. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy. And then Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota, said, if we don't change the foundation problems within our conference, it's just going to be the same stupid clown car with a different clown driving. Max Miller of Ohio We want to continue to achieve the incremental conservative wins that we were achieving under McCarthy, and we were achieving those wins under Speaker McCarthy. Ali Otakis, she's Republican from New York. I'm getting frustrated with everyone being petty about their reasons when we have a government to run. Now, there are others in the caucus, they, they take a different view. It's much larger. They see small spending cuts as incremental victories that are going to add up to a major achievement. That difference in approach to this whole economical conundrum can lead to suspicion and mistrust, despite most working for the same goal. Former Speaker John Boehner wrote about that phenomenon in his memoir on the House Boehner was speaker when the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, went into effect in 2010. He led the attempts to overturn that legislation until he retired in 2015. As hard as it is to pass a law like Obamacare in the first place, it can be just as hard or harder to repeal or unpass it. That's from his book. The way to do it? is to dismantle key components one piece at a time. Not everybody agreed with Boehner. Complaining about lawmaker, one lawmaker who wanted a different approach, Boehner wrote, he wanted it done in one fell swoop, and it was his way of the highway. And the rest of us, who opposed Obamacare but didn't kill it immediately, were just stupid or lazy or worse were traitors. Some of that bad blood, it's still hanging around the Republican cloakroom in the Capitol. McCarthy was ousted in part because several members believed he wasn't serious about cutting federal spending. The last straw was when he passed that continuing spending resolution on September 30th, which they said signaled a return to business as usual. And they were led by you know who, Representative Matt Gates of Florida. He said when arguing for McCarthy's removal, we need a speaker. 
ideally somebody who doesn't want to be speaker and hasn't pursued that at all costs for his entire adult life. We will take a moment and do everything possible to fight for the country. For this Republican conference, the one we got right now, choosing a speaker wasn't a matter of picking the next name on the list. Trust has been shattered in that room, Max Miller, the Texas Republican, said. During the nominating process, a big number of members spoke to reporters about being heard and about being included in decision-making. They're looking for a leader they could trust. You can't get any of that. You can't get anything done until you somehow find unity in the party. No question the Republican majority is diverse, so much so that some members wonder aloud if a consensus candidate can even been found. Some districts are solidly Republican, including a few former Donald Trump carried by more than 50 percentage points in 2020. Other districts, solidly purple. 18 Republicans represent districts won by Joe Biden in the last election. You can't disregard all of that. Facts are facts. Some seats merely lean Republican in preference polling. Others are considered toss-ups in next year's election. Unifying the conference may prove challenging for whoever is going to be the next speaker. Thinking that Jim Jordan might yet prevail in winning the gavel, Newt reflected on the challenging of creating unity. Here's what he said. I think the question is, can Jordan figure out which fights to pick? When he walks into the conference and says, this is what we're going to do, what percentage of the conference will agree with him and go on with him? And what happens if the conference, as in unity, rebels? I don't know the answer to that yet. But the American people are watching, and we're slapping ourselves on the forehead saying, what the heck is going on? And why is it going on? Wow. Wow. I don't know about you, but I need some answers. (laughs) I need to know what the heck is happening and why it's happening. Do you feel that? I really do, and it really, really bothers me. Can we agree on one thing, you and me? We've got about 25 minutes left in the show today. Can we get off of this mess for a little bit? Can we talk about a few other things? Believe it. Or not. Life goes on. Life in the United States, is it exists no matter what happens in Congress. We just got to find a way to make life work. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. As you know, we have a good relationship with one of the premier cryptocurrency gurus on the planet. He's been on this show four times now. Dunstan Teo is his name. If you're a gamer or one of your kids is a gamer, and you want to know a little bit about him, go do a Google search. Dunstan, D-U-N-S-T-O-N, Teo, T-E-O. Ask your kid. He got started in the crypto world by getting into and dominating the gamer world, winning some of the greatest contests, millions of dollars through the years. 
Dunstan, the last time he came on this show, was right after the FTX debacle broke. And that the trial is going on right now. Sam Bankman freed. He destroyed many people's lives. He took money, billions of dollars of money, from cryptocurrency holders that sent their cryptocurrency to FTX. It's kind of like a place, a holding place, where whoever's managing the fund is responsible for, and they find ways, just like your Merrill Lynch broker, stockbroker. It's the same thing, but currency, cryptocurrency is what's being traded. Dunstan, who has a really deep inside look into the crypto world and has since Bitcoin was created, Mind is the correct term when they mine those crypto coins. And he on the show gave us some specific information. And you heard the interview if you were here then. You heard it. And you've heard it once since then. I played it one time since then. But I thought it was a good time to listen to part of what he had to say about the FTX and the Sam Bankman and... (laughs) Dunstan's from Southeast Asia. He's from Singapore. He's got a heavy accent, but he calls him Sam Bankman Fried. After this message, you're going to hear that conversation in part, the important part, with Dunstan Teo. You don't want to miss this. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for the three ninety nine six inch sub of the day. How do you want it? Secret DJ set. At a retirement home? Weird. I like it. DJ sandwich in the house. What did he say? Italian BMT 399. I called the EMT. Turkey breast 399. How much? 399. Bingo! Limited time at participating shops. Prices and subs included may vary. Additional charge for extras plus tax. No additional discounts or coupons applied. A friend of mine said he wanted to talk to me about my Volvo. I told him, thank you, that's between me and my gynecologist. He said, no, no, your car, your Volvo 850 Turbo Sports Wagon. I said, oh, that. Nope, you can't drive it. Oh, I love my Volvo. Sure, it's safe, but gee, just because driving on the freeways of Southern California is the equivalent of playing bumper cars at the speed of light, what kind of reason is that? Volvos are still ultra-luxury imports, sleek and gorgeous and loaded to hear, safe and sexy, and pardon me, I have to go hug my car now. Want safe and sexy? Viva la Volvo. Test drive a Volvo 850 at your Southern California Volvo dealer. Since when is safe sexy, another friend asked. Hey, I said, what decade are you living in? Computer, execute 12.4p operation. Optimizing algorithm. Running encryption packet alpha. Night, night. Oh, I don't feel so good. What? What is it, computer? Is it hot in here? It feels hot in here? I feel a little clammy. I should lie down or something. A computer with a virus? Surprising. What's not surprising? How much you could save by switching to GEICO. Those oysters Rockefeller were a mistake. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Out for some lays and you face a test. Which tasty chip will be the best? Sour cream and onion, smoky barbecue. Cheddar, sour cream, salt, and vinegar, too. You sample them all because the crisp is so good on your lips. Yeah. You left your wallet at home. 
But now you have a new best friend. The many flavors of Lay's chips. One taste and you're in love. No identity politics. No political elitism. Read and hear the truth. Always sourced from facts. Real truth. Real news. TNN. The Truth News Network. Yep, that's who we are. We work to get the facts and only the facts and bring them to you. And we talk about often the stuff that's presented out there that's supposedly factual, but it's BS and nothing nothing more than that. I won't even get more into the conversation with Dunstan Teo, but he talked a lot about the relationships with powerful people that FTX had and the big players and how they played into the billions of dollars of cryptocurrency that was stolen by Sam Bankman-Fried. Here's Dunstan Teo. They're working with FTX. How so? So so this is where the history of the creation of FTX would be interesting. I will not draw any conclusions. I'll allow the audience to draw their own conclusions. <laughs> I know <laughs> I, I know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, I, I let me just let me just tell the people that are listening in. You and I had this this conversation and I told you, look, we're we're in a situation this is a streaming radio show. Uh, the FCC does not have any say so. There's I I want you to be comfortable to name names give us specifics because people that are listening, many of are people who have bought crypto for the very first time and have been part of what, and are part of what you and I are involved in and some other things. And I want them to understand this is not about cryptocurrency being evil. It's about people being evil. So why don't you just launch into telling us the history of this FTX thing and how we got to where we are. Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna add a bit more to what you just said, man. Okay. It's not just about people being evil. It's about world leaders being evil right now. Which is as bad as it can get. So so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Sam, the the founder and the creator of FTX and his family. Okay. And how somebody like him raised so much capital to create FTX and how many of the major funds on earth, many of the major investment funds like the Tomasic Holding of Singapore and so on, invested in him. It's not him being eloquent. He's not eloquent. (laughs) He's not. Just look at him on YouTube. (laughs) Listen to the podcast and you know it's not about him being convincing or eloquent, but take a look. We now have Sam Bankman fried. His mom works for the Clinton Foundation, including his brother. That's the first thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the CEO of FTX is the daughter of an MIT professor who is the best friend of the head of the SEC. That doesn't sound very good to me. It doesn't. 
and it gets worse. Okay. Funds from the from the FTX treasury were used to lobby the SEC to work against the crypto companies, which was the reason why when when the head of Binance, which is CZ, heard about it, he was pissed and he spread it out in public what was done. Where Sam Bankman Fried actually lobbied the SEC against the industry that he was in. Why would he do that? Because he was never for crypto. He was always for fiat and he was always working as an agent of the SEC, as an agent for the political powers. This is uncanny. I mean, this may be the biggest financial fraud in world history. It is. And interestingly, looking at the money flow, look at the funds that went from the exchange and to which administration did he fund during the campaign? Well, you and I know the answer to that was a Democrat administration. Mm-hmm. They funded the, the Biden campaign. He was the third or second largest funder in the campaign. That's Dunstan Teo talking to us from several months ago. And it was right after the FTX explosion happened and the world began to see what cryptocurrency can be used as. Cryptocurrency is a very safe way to conduct business. It's growing in demand worldwide. It's becoming easier every day. It's no different than, remember when banks across the world, they began to go digital and they put your accounts online and you were able to do pretty much everything. You can make deposits, do it remotely. I do it so thoughtlessly now. One of my major accounts, I haven't ever deposited anything in it other than taking my iPhone and taking pictures of the front and the back of a check, and then it's immediately deposited in my account. I don't get bank statements physically anymore. The same kind of thing is happening in the transition, and it is a transition. There are tons of people that want to do away with fiat money. Now, what is fiat money? It's money that's just cash, and there's really nothing behind it that makes it worth what it says on the dollar bill, the $5 bill, that it's this document, this piece of paper is worth this about money. It's not worth anything on its own, but what's behind it is what counts. Cryptocurrency is the safest concept of business transactions and currency changing hands in world history. Why is that? Because whoever has that cryptocurrency in their account, and they don't call it an account, it's a wallet. You're the only one that can touch it and do anything with it. 
unless you give somebody else the way to get into it, the numbers, the access numbers, the codes, unless you give them to somebody else, nobody can steal it. How did FTX do it then, Dan? They simply created, Sam Bankman-Fried created a brokerage house, stock brokerage house. It wasn't stock, it was cryptocurrency. And some very famous people, they fell in love with the concept and they deposited billions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency in the, from their own wallet into the FTX exchange. And it was a brokerage firm, just like Merrill Lynch, all of the big ones in the past. You let them hold your money, hold your cryptocurrency, and then they invested for you in opportunities and places that most individuals, private individuals, can't access. And supposedly, it goes up in value you determine at whatever point you want to take it out of your account at FTX, put it back in your wallet, sell it, whatever you want to do. And what Sam Bankman-Fried did was he accessed the billions of dollars worth of crypto in people's accounts that had deposited that in his firm, FTX. And then he just used it just like he wanted to use it. He bought a multi-million dollar condo in the Bahamas. He gave tens of millions of dollars to candidates in the 2020 race. He had NFL players, NFL owners, NFL head coaches, all loved the opportunity they, they saw. And many of them deposited their cryptocurrency with the FTX exchange. And the players that he mentioned, there are more of them. I'm not going to play that whole audio bite. But it even got into when the United States started sending money to Ukraine. That money, the first batch of it, at least the big one, it went as cryptocurrency. And the reason and the purpose for doing that was the bank's in, uh, in Ukraine were most of them out of business. They weren't functioning. They weren't manned. And so their wire system wasn't even operating. And the only way to get it there, I don't know what specific crypto wallets, your dollars and my dollars, the Biden family, not the Biden family, the Biden administration sent. I don't know exactly where it all went, but Dunstan maintained that a bunch of the money went to places other than Ukraine and people other than Ukraine. Some of the names were mentioned in that segment you just heard. Why am I bringing this up? It's simply to point out that as he is being tried for the massive fraud he perpetrated on some really good people, we need to know the good, the bad, and ugly because our government right now is in the process of rolling out its own cryptocurrency, crypto dollar. Why would they do that? Well, the stated purpose is to make it easier for everybody to transact, move stuff around, pay bills. But you will have to open your account with the government, and the government will be replacing your bank. How many in this audience today, 
want to deposit your money in an account that you know when you do it, federal government has access to everything there, including, if they want to, the ability to put their hands on it, block it, keep you from doing something with it. Who trusts that that might be a strong possibility if we go down that road? All I can say is be careful, be careful. Speaking of um, financial issues, I don't know if you heard, but George Soros has shuttered his offices and he's letting staff members go. Leadership commitments were no match for corporate restructuring. And George Soros's torch passed to his son. Part of that process was massive layoffs for the billionaire's global network. He is a spooky guy, is George Soros. His son, Alex Soros, who took control of this Soros Network Open Society Foundation in December last year, and his father's operations in June, ushered in a second restructuring within three years. Now, according to emails reviewed by Bloomberg, the $25 billion international network, they're cutting 40% of its workforce, paring it down to a fraction of what it was just 24 months ago. In one message sent by the Open Society Foundation Vice President of Programming, Benefer Nargi, it was stated, we no longer have the bandwidth to operate multiple small offices and thus the decision to further reduce our locations. With the decision by the board in June to cut the staff by more than 40%, our staffing size and footprint by necessity needs to diminish. Specifics about the cuts included the shuttering of offices in half a dozen locations across one continent. This is according to an email coming out of Africa. They include Abuja, Nigeria, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Cape Town, Freetown, Sierra, Sierra Leone, Kampala, Uganda, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Meanwhile, offices in Dakar, Senegal, Johannesburg, South Africa, and Nairobi, Kenya, are going to remain open. I'm very sorry that it's turned out this way, wrote this staff member of the Open Society Foundation. We committed to do this two years ago. I wonder what that's all about. In a September interview with Bloomberg, OSF President Match Malik Brown contended the latest restructuring is geared at making the foundation more nimble and the staff reduction would leave them with less than 500 people on payroll, when in 2021, they had close to 1,700 employees. That's a heck of a place to finish the show with, right? (laughs) George Soros, he's been an enigma to all of us for decades. He got filthy rich by betting against the British pound in the the, uh, currency markets, and he bet the value of the pound was going to drop precipitously, and he spent millions of his own dollar betting that the pound would go down when the market was saying otherwise, and when it crashed, he cashed out. One big event gave him the foundation to do 
all of the stuff that he's done through the years. And for whatever it's worth, he's not a really good guy. (laughs) So we spent a lot of time talking about chaos, talking about important issues, trying to get along. Things that work out for us, sometimes it means we got to give a little to get a little. I thought it appropriate to end today's show with a song that um, nobody can argue is very peaceful and quiet. Maybe you can get a a few minutes of rest. (laughs) You have a wonderful day. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Central at TNN Live. So long, everybody.